Well, I don't know if you know this, but one of the top hikes in the world is the West Coast Trail. It's number, ranked number 10 in all of the world of hikes. If you were to think of some of the great mountains in the world and hiking in the world, of course, you'd think of Everest, and that's number three. You would think of Machu Picchu in Peru, and that's number one on the list. But number 10 on that list is the West Coast Trail. It's a great local area, a world-class site, and we have many world-class sites in the province of British Columbia. I don't know if you've ever hiked to the top of Mount Cheam out east of Chilliwack, but that is an incredible hike, and I, I would... I would highly recommend that all of you do that. If you enjoy hiking, it is a great hike. I did it several years ago and loved it. It's about 7,500 feet up. You, drive, you can drive most of the way. You can park in the valley floor and walk all 7,500 if you want. But you can park at around 4,500 feet and walk the rest of the way. And it is a tremendous view once you get the top. And isn't that the point of hiking? It's so often the view. It's not just the exercise, but when you get to the top, you see, and you can see wonders, you can see grandeur, you can see amazing things, and it makes you feel very small. That's what I felt at the top of Mount Cheam. I don't know if you know where it is, but you're heading east past Chilliwack on Highway 1, you look straight ahead, and it kind of looks, looks like this, like a big ramp that's going up, or like this for your view. And uh, it looks like a huge ramp, a big jagged rock at the top there, and you can stand on that very top of that mountain. And it doesn't seem that big, and you feel very small in light of all that's around you, this panorama, this view that is all around you. It is an incredible thing. And what we have before us tonight is a mountaintop in our scriptures, certainly the mountain peak in the book of Philippians, because it unfolds for us some things about the Lord Jesus Christ that we stand back in wonder and amazement as we look at them. It is the high point of the book. And last time we looked at verses 27 to 30 in chapter 1, and we used six words to outline that, uh, that portion of Scripture. Six words to outline 27 to 30 in chapter 1. And it says there in verse 27, that your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And so we looked at different words like consistency and bravery and ag- agony and clarity and camaraderie. And it sounds very military-like. And it's a military mindset that the Apostle Paul has as he looks at life. He knows that, that this world is not a playground, it is a battleground. And he wants us to be battle-ready with whatever we face. Have you been in a battle this week? Have you battled this week? Have you battled sin, the world, the flesh, the devil? Have you been in a battle? If you have, that is a good sign. That's a good thing because conflict shows us to be Christians. When we battle, we are showing us ourselves to be Christians. And J.C. Ryle says, Where there is grace, there will be conflict. There is no holiness without warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. And that leads us into chapter 2 here with this great picture that we have of Jesus Christ in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. Now what we see in the first eight verses, we could use the words unity and humility to describe. That's what we see unfolding for us here, unity and humility. And the Apostle Paul wrote about church unity a lot. The peace, the purity, the unity of the church was extremely important to the Apostle Paul, and it was extremely important to Jesus. He prays for our unity in John 17. 
And it's something that we should be continually praying for as well, that we would be a unified body because fracturing a church is one of Satan's major uh, uh, ways about going about getting us off task and getting us wayward in the life of the church. A divided church is a weak church. And Satan wants us divided. And so the Apostle Paul knows that. And he speaks about unity in the church in every single one of his epistles. He talks about unity. And in verses 1 to 4 here, Paul gives us perhaps the most concise and practical teaching on church unity that we see. Things for the Philippians to do because of what Jesus Christ has done. And he'll unfold that in verses 5 through 8. But the overarching mindset of the believer is to be one of humility. Because when we are humble as a church body, as individuals, that will lead to unity. And so let's read verses 1 to 4 once more. He begins by saying, so. And that just is linking the previous passage to what we are going to read now. It's like a therefore. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, that is fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, that's compassion, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So a church in unity brings the leadership joy. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. It's a very important principle for us to lay down. These are four realities that the apostle gives us here that should motivate us to unity. Motivators to unity we see here in these first couple of verses. And then he goes on to describe some other important things. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. What is that? That's the idea of self-promotion at the expense of other people. Wanting to elevate ourselves above other people. Being self-centered. Building oneself up by putting other people down. Being selfish in the way that we live. It's easy to see how that would disrupt unity. There's no humility in that, is there? Selfishness is not humility. It is the opposite. And the word selfish ambition can also be translated as dissensions or divisions. And it's listed in Galatians 5.20 along other sins like sexual immorality, like idolatry, like sorcery and witchcraft. And so it is a very heinous sin that we see here before us. Selfish, selfishness is a very serious sin that must be avoided like the plague that it is. With that infection of selfishness, it will lead to disunity. And then the second thing he brings out in verse 3 is conceit. This is similar to the first, but it carries with it the idea of seeking personal glory for oneself. And the Christian needs to remember who they are in light of who God is. That glory is not to come to us, glory is to go to God alone. And if we don't understand that, if we are selfish and conceited, then we can be sure that we will not have unity in the church. And the other principle alongside unity, Paul says, don't be selfish or conceited, be humble. Humility, we see that in 3b. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Paul sets forth for the church that the key to Christian unity is humility. If you have humility, you will have unity. If you have unity, there's going to be humility. These things go hand in hand. They are to be like-minded and they are to be lowly-minded. They are to be like-minded in unity. They are to be lowly-minded in humility. And so John Newton said, Above all things, we should pray for humility 
It may be called both the guard of all other graces and the soil in which they grow. If you want to grow in grace, be humble. Pride drives a wedge in relationships. Humility unifies. It becomes a unifying principle. And this is the source of Christian unity. It is humility. And it's an inward heart attitude that Augustine called the first precept of the Christian religion. The first precept of the Christian religion in Augustine's mind was humility. Do you know what his second and third principle were? Humility. Humility. Those were her first, his first three principles in the Christian religion. Humility. So important. Humility involves two things that really spring from knowing who God is and knowing who we are in light of who God is. The first is humility will have a proper perspective of ourselves. And if we are humble, we will understand that God is totally holy and that we are totally dependent upon him, that we need him, that we are submissive to him. We have nothing to boast in except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that understanding of God himself will lead to a proper view of others, a proper view of others. In our text, it, it says, count others more significant. This is the idea that others receive preferential treatment. And it is, in fact, defined by the second positive attitude that we see here in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It doesn't say we shouldn't have any interests. It doesn't say that we shouldn't look after ourselves, but we should also be looking after other people. Being others-centered. And this is how Paul shows us how we can strive for unity and humility in the church. Not just taking care of ourselves, but caring for other people. And it is an easy thing to say, but it is a difficult and hard thing for us to apply in the church. But as followers of the Lord Jesus, we are to love and to care for other people. Not just ourselves. Not to be selfish, but to be other-orientated. And that means walking with people in the messes of life. We walk with people when life gets messy, when things are hard, when there are hardships and sufferings in someone's life. We are to come alongside as the body of Christ and to lift them up and try to alleviate that suffering as best as we can. Caring for people in trial and suffering. Why do we do that? Why should we do that? Because that is what the Lord does with us. He doesn't abandon us in suffering and trial. He walks alongside of us in, in grace and in mercy. He is long-suffering towards us. These are things that we do not deserve. And yet God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. But not only does he save us, he also covenants with us to walk with us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the, of, in the day of Jesus Christ. We saw that back in chapter 1 and verse 6. He's going to walk with us through every single trial we face, through every single sickness we face. Through death, he will walk with us and he will stand with us on the day of glorification. He's going to be with us the whole way, all the way. He doesn't abandon and discard when things get messy. He doesn't abandon and discard when somebody says something and we take such easy offense to it and we write off the relationship. Paul doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that with us. And we can be thankful and grateful for that because 
because Christ would have dispelled and dispensed with me a long, long time ago. And yet he bears with me and he bears with you as well. And we are to bear with one another, not being easily offended, but instead having love and grace and forgiveness and patience. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what did he do? He humbled himself. And this begins a portion of scripture that we see here in verses 5 through 8 that may have been some form of an early Christian hymn, may have been some early Christian confession, but it is a high point that we see here unfolding for us in the coming verses in the book. And one author has said that the incarnation is the central miracle of Christianity, the most grand and wonderful of all the things that God has ever done. Of all the things that God has ever done, the incarnation. Let's read verses 5 through 8 once again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The example here of humility is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the grand example that the apostle lays before us. It is the example of Jesus. Now, Jesus is totally and eternally God. And that's what makes the example so wonderful. This example of humility in the person of God himself. And we are told that Jesus was in the form of God, that he was God. One in essence of nature, of one substance with the Father, and yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? It means at least this, that though he's in the form of God, that he didn't make that a special privilege, where he's clutching and grabbing for that. Instead of grasping and holding with a closed fist on all of the rights and the privileges that were his as God, he had an open hand with those things. He came into the world through the incarnation, the joining of deity and humanity in the nature very God of very God. 100% God, 100% man joined together in this hypostatic union and in so doing he emptied himself. He made himself as nothing in comparison to the glory that he held in heaven. So 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ humbled himself, and he was obedient in his humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, there are many ways that Christ could have been put to death. He could have been beheaded, like John the Baptist. He could have been speared through, or, or sword cut off his head, or, or different means. But Christ suffered crucifixion, this way in which the Romans would execute common criminals. And no Roman would be crucified, no matter how heinous his crime was. But yet common criminals, low criminals, enemies of the state, slaves, they would be executed in this manner. And it was a very terrible way to die. It was a a great way to prolong suffering of the person who this death penalty was pronounced upon. And as cruel and as gruesome as it was, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ was God's plan all along. It was part of the plan of redemption. As Peter declares... He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Paul puts forward Jesus as the example, but Jesus is much more than an example, as the Apostle Paul goes on to say here. J. Gresham Machen said, If Jesus be merely an example, he is not a worthy example, for he claimed to be far more. He claimed to be far more than just an example, and far more than an example he is. Paul proclaims him as such here, and we see that God the, the Father exalts him as much more than a mere example in the unfolding verses here for us, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see the Father's exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ here. And the exaltation of Christ is put forth beautifully for us in Hebrews chapter 1 in several verses there. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, though who, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Christ has dominion. Christ has sovereign rule and reign. Every knee will bow. Those who claim that the Bible is myths and fairy tales, they will bow. Those who claim that Jesus never existed, he's not a historical person, they will bow to him. Those who claim that there are many paths to heaven, there's many ways that we're going to go, are going to find out one day that there is one way, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they too will bow. All the angels will bow, all demons will bow, all hell will bow, no more false gods and religions, no more cultish ideas about who Jesus is or is not. Everyone who has ever lived will bow and confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The humble incarnate Savior has been exalted to the almighty sovereign Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that means that we need to follow him in obedience. Just as we close our time here in the last five or seven minutes. We need to follow him in obedience in every area of our life. We need to say with the Apostle Paul that I've been crucified with Christ. And it is I who no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus was humble. He obeyed. And we are to be humble. And we are to obey. Another thing that this passage teaches us is that the way up is the way down. The way up is the way down. And that is the secret here to this passage on humility. Jesus counted people more important than himself. People who were less important than himself. Paul is saying that, Paul is saying that it is what the Christian church is to be like. The secret of Christian unity is humility. The way up is the way down. Humility. Humility, we esteem others as better than ourselves. And also, there is a great reward for humility. The Bible talks a lot about humility. 
When we have an attitude of humility, seeking to prefer others, it will be rewarded. We see Jesus make a promise to us in Matthew twenty three twelve: Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. James said, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And so we see a reward for those who are humble. Another encouragement to us is that we should be on the lookout and root out pride in our lives. We should be very careful about that root sin of pride that brings about all kinds of fruit sins in our lives. Pride is a disease disease that infects all of us to one degree or another. Thomas Watson, the right manner of growth is to grow less in one's own eyes. Our natural inclination is to elevate ourselves. It's pride. And we are admonished here to be on the lookout for pride. It is the oldest and most common sin. It goes all the way back to the garden. Pride. Now, like many of you, I love missionary biographies. And one of the things that happens to my wife when she reads them is that she wants to go explore all these places where these missionaries are. And she wants to, okay, on our next holiday, we'll go here. I read a story about this person, we'll go there. And I'm not so much into that. I I don't mind walking in their footsteps, but I want to sleep in my own bed at night. I don't necessarily want to walk jungles in third world countries and, and do this type of thing. But one of, one of my favorite missionaries is Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor is an amazing man who was with the China Inland Mission and served on the mission field for decades, had many sufferings, many trials, lost his wife, lost children on the mission field, suffered greatly through the first 10 years of his ministry, not one convert. And yet the Lord blessed him for his humility, for his faithfulness on the mission field, and blessed with many converts, with hundreds of missionaries following him, with tens of thousands of Chinese becoming converted through his ministry. Now, one place I wouldn't mind following in his footsteps was when he was speaking in, in Australia. He was in Australia at this large church, this Presbyterian gathering, and the, the person who was the moderator of this particular meeting was introducing him and was going through all this language, telling how great that uh, Hudson Taylor was and these amazing things, and, and introduced him as our illustrious guest. And so Hudson Taylor stood up and got to the podium, and he was quiet as he looked around, and he said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. Humility. Humility. He had every right to receive those accolades. He'd done great things for God, perhaps. He could say, you, you, you don't know the half of it. I could tell you story after story about how great I am. He didn't do that. Humility was the thing that identified Hudson Taylor. Humility, a man who knew Jesus so well. And he also knew himself so well. He knew that he was but a lowly servant of a great master. He knew the wonder, the amazement, the grandeur of who Christ is. And by that, he saw everything else much clearer. And that is the lesson in humility. When we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we look on him, as we are told here in verse 5, in Christ Jesus, this is yours in Christ Jesus. We must look to Christ. And the more we look to Christ, each one of us as a body, in this body, the more we look to Christ, the more we'll have humility and the more we will have unity. Let's pray.
Oh God, I must confess that I have barely scratched the surface of the wonder and the grandeur of our Lord Jesus Christ, this amazing example, but much more than an example. And so I pray, O Lord, that in the coming weeks and months, all of us would endeavor to discover more and more who Jesus is and what he is like so that we would be like him, so that we would behold him, and so we would too would be humble as we look into our Savior's face. I ask that you would bless each one, bless each one at home, and help us, Lord, to humble ourselves under your eye, and that you will exalt us in due time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, for our